This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. It was my character. It wasn't my color that I like to think that um, got me through. Here, the only thing that mattered was could you block and could you tackle. They didn't care what color you were. I came to Green Bay uh, the same year Vince Lombardi did, and I was, uh, I will say it again, I was born right. I'm really just in favor of great competition and great athletes, and uh, the Packers have had more than their fair share of the great athletes and the great competition. And Lombardi was going to be no easy act to follow. Gentlemen, this is the most important play we have. The play we must make, though. Cut! 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 The Vince Lombardi Trophy is coming home where it started. One of the Washington Redskins players came up and said, Coach, can I carry your bag? And he said, oh yes, would you please? Marie told me, she said, that's the first indication that, I, that he was really ill, seriously ill. He passed out in the locker room. Uh, he, he drove himself to the point where I think he really, he was spent and he was afraid of what might be going on. I went to see him, he was in the hospital and when I walked out of there, I was, I was sad. I don't know if he's going to make it. Coach was laying in bed, and his hands were down at his side, and his hands were clenched. And I knew he was fighting it. I said, God bless you, and he said, thank you, and that was it. You know, um, he was feeling very badly. It would have been hard. Because it was him that made me a good football player. I went over to his bedside and touched his arm. And he opened his eyes and I said, Coach, I just wanted to tell you how much you meant to me, what you meant to my life, and how much I loved you. You've made a great difference in my life. September 3rd, 1970. Vince Lombardi dies of colon cancer at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is 57 years old. He can die. He can't die. Not this guy. He's not ever going to die. And uh, so you couldn't, couldn't believe it. And uh, ultimately, you had to believe it. 
four days later, his funeral is held at New York's St. Patrick's Cathedral. We said goodbye to him, but he lives with us every day. He's part of our life every day. There wasn't anybody like him and there ever will be. He will be more respected than anybody in the history of this league. He's respected as a man, as a coach, and as a leader. He knew the, how to really get inside a person, head and heart. And the heart was, I think, the thing that was especially domineering. I know I'm an emotional man. In order for me, for example, to give everything of myself, take the mental anguish that's all part of this game, the emotionalism that's all part of this game, in order for me to do this for someone else, I think there has to be a certain amount of love for that other person. There's love for each other, in other words. His friends were his football players. Those were the people that he cared about. Outside of his players and the function of running the Green Bay Packers, that was it for him. That was enough for him. He didn't need any more. One week after Lombardi's death, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle announces the renaming of the league's championship trophy. Pro football lost one of its legends, and Pete Rozelle changed the name of the ultimate trophy in the game to the Vince Lombardi Trophy. It's a trophy that's awarded to the champion team, not an individual, a team. Someone who's attained that level of meaning in American life dies. You lose the person, but you don't lose anything else. The mythology, the meaning of Vince Lombardi is as deep today or deeper than it was when he died. He's the greatest coach in the history of this game, and he loved the NFL. Lombardi was the patron saint of the NFL right at the time when it was reaching its majestic status in American life. The rise of football was in part made possible by Lombardi and the Packers. The following year, the late Vince Lombardi is inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Packers hadn't won for more than a decade before he got here, and they didn't win for almost a quarter of a century after he left. So I'd say his impact was rather substantial. He's been dead almost 50 years, and the way they talk about him, you'd think he was standing in the back of the room. They still have that much reverence, that much respect. He would take whatever you had and make it good and make it better. In all, 13 Lombardi Packers are enshrined in Canton. To this day, the Packers of the 60s are the only team to have won three straight championships under a playoff system. So they did things that no other team had done before. I've always said that the guys that played for Lombardi played over their heads. They really did. He gave football what it needed, and that was he took people and made them great. He made me somebody bigger than I I expected to be. I think the cheers of the people, the Super Bowl victories, that all fades away. But you never forget your great friends that were in the, in, in the ditch with you. They attribute their success in life to the lessons they learned from Vince Lombardi. He brought everybody in the right aim with the right goal and to not let each other down, respect each other, respect each other as not only as, as teammates, but as men. After the game is over, Stadium is empty, lights are out, press releases have been filed, championship ring is on the dresser, you're all alone in the quiet of your room. 
The only thing left at this time is to lead a life of quality and excellence and make this old world just a little bit better because you were in it. Historically, Green Bay is an almost entirely white community. People were not used to seeing black people. They weren't used to talking to black people. If you saw a black person walking down the street in Green Bay, the assumption automatically was he must have been a Packer player. There were no blacks in Green Bay. It was a white community. The black people that you would see passing through Green Bay many times would be the people that were working on the railroads in terms of whether they're porters or working in the dining cars or other aspects of the train travel that would be coming in and out of town. I didn't have a chance to really study the Packers. And, and so after I signed, and I saw the quarterbacks from Alabama and the running back from Louisville and the other running backs from LSU and half the lines from Texas. In college, every time I went south of the Mason-Dixon line, I had some bad experiences. Now I was going to have a whole team full of guys from the South. And I thought, did I do the right thing? <laughs> In 1961, Herb Adderley, Willie Davis, and Elijah Pitts share a fixed-up one-bedroom apartment. The other half of the building is the Canadao exterminating business. Willie Davis gets the bedroom because he's the oldest. Adderley and Pitts flip a coin to see who sleeps on the sofa and who sleeps on an army cot. Adderley says, the homeless shelters in Green Bay are better and have better furniture. None of the black ballplayers brought the wires to Green Bay. I was here the first year and I saw what it was like in Green Bay. Everybody said there was one black lady in town with two daughters. I was here for 10 years, I never saw it. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 68 brought a legal end to segregation and discrimination. The Packers had already broken the color barrier nearly 20 years before. In 1950, the Packers signed free agent end Bob Mann. The very next day, he became the first African-American to play for the Packers in a league game. Or was he? Bob Mann has long been credited with being the first African-American to play for the Packers in a regular season game. He really broke the color barrier for playing professional football in Green Bay. He clearly had a huge impact by signing with the Packers and becoming the first African-American that was known to play for the Green Bay Packers. Curly Lambeau had never had a black player that anybody was aware of. Subsequently, we learned that Walt Jean was an African-American who played in the mid-20s. Walter Jean, a Packer during the 25 and 26 seasons, may actually have been the first. His father was black, his mother was white, in all likelihood, when Gene played for the Packers, he was considered to be white by Lambeau, his teammates, and fans. In 1959, the Packers acquired defensive back M1 Tunnell from the New York Giants. Spent the majority of his career with the Giants, the Lombardi knew him from there. He was looking for that leadership and direction to help some of the younger players on the team, so that's why Lombardi brought him here. When he arrives, housing is difficult to find in Green Bay. During part of his playing career, he lives at the Hotel Northland. Lombardi pays his room and board. When Lombardi started in 1959, Emlyn Tunnell was a winner. The rest of the players he inherited were abysmal losers, basically, who just finished playing on a 110 and one team. 
Emlyn Tennell helped Lombardi teach the Packers how to win. He was really a de facto assistant coach before there were any African-American assistant coaches. He was invaluable. And that was the start of changing the culture of the Green Bay Packers. He played 11 seasons with New York, three seasons with the Packers, and became a respected team leader, paving the way for many African-Americans to play pivotal roles in the team's success during the 1960s. In 1959, there were only four African-American players on the team. And by the end, six of the 11 players on the number one ranked defense are African-Americans. It was a uncommon to draft African-Americans in the first round. But Vince Lombardi broke the mold, and he drafted Herb Riley in 1961, and he drafted me in 1963, and so that was two out of three years he drafted African-American in the first round. Lombardi changed everything in terms of race um, with the Packers. He didn't see black or white, he just saw green and gold, and, and, uh, and that's all it took. The men who he signed and played were such great, intelligent people. So many other NFL teams had quotas, or at least it was understood that they did to keep the number of African-American players to a minimum, and he had none. The 1962 Green Bay Packer World Championship team is the last, the last offensive unit without a black gentleman on it. When Lombardi's teams in the mid-60s won three more championships, some of those teams hadn't really increased their numbers. The Packers, in 1967, had six African-American starters on the defensive side of the ball, and that was the strength of those teams, great defense. I believe the number one reason for that was Vince Lombardi's open-door policy toward African-American players. There was all this criticism about having too many African-Americans, and he made that statement, if I hear anybody complain, he said, we'll never play another game in Green Bay. One of his best traits that maybe we overlook is how tolerant he was of other people's religions, their race. He was beloved by his African-American players. There was a family who lived in Kenosha. I went to school with one of the daughters who was a dancer at the University of Utah. So they came up and took me to brunch on a Sunday. And one of the ball players, the white ball players, saw me with her. And it was an unwritten no-no that a black be with a white person. So he goes and tells Lombardi. And surely enough, the next day, Lombardi called me in. He says, I'm going to make a good player out of you, but I'm going to be on you to make you a better player. Will you be able to take it? And I said, yeah. He says, I'm going to be on you to make be a better player. Can you make it? I said, yes, 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 sir, I, I can. He says, boom, he says, I'm going to be on you to make you the best player I can. Will you be able to stand? I said, yes, sir, Coach Lombardi. And he says, all right then. He says, that'd be all. That'd be all? You're, you're not going to cut me, I said. He says, Marvin, just be discreet. That's all. Finding housing for black players is difficult. Many stay at the YMCA as an option. The Civil Rights Act changed everything, but it didn't take effect in 1968. You could walk up to a guy and say, I, I saw him adding the paper, and he said, we don't rent to blacks. Lombardi was so strong. If you ever felt that anybody was being mistreated in the way of housing or anything like that, 
he would call him on it. We rented a house because the landlady had got an argument with her neighbors and said, I'll get even with you. I'm going to rent the blacks. He made some moves on landlords that never got publicized. But the landlords either behaved or lost their customer. At the time, because of the Jim Crow laws, they had white and black hotels. They were playing in the South. Lombardi housed them at a Fort Benning, you know, at a military institution so that those black players wouldn't have to stay somewhere else. It was certainly another example of his sensitivity to diversity and that all his players would be treated equally. Because Lombardi had experienced discrimination on his own by being an Italian, he was more open-minded and more supportive of the African-American players. When you talk about the problems of the African-Americans in, in, in the white community, it was almost the same as the problems were for uh, Italian in New York. He felt at various times that because he was not only Italian, but Southern Italian and dark-skinned Italian, that he was being discriminated against. He felt he did not get the head coaching position in New York because of the fact that he was Italian. He said, you know, I think it's because my last name ends in an I. He was very sensitive to that. He also had a gay brother, and I'm sure that he witnessed the prejudice that he had been subjected to. Lombardi was decades ahead of most other people in sports on issues of gender and sexuality. He wasn't going to let anybody uh, discriminate against his players. There were like seven or eight places in town where African-American ballplayers were not accepted. And Vince heard about it. Lombardi went to those places and said, if I hear you discriminate against any of my players, you're off limits for the entire team. He let the fans know right then and there, we don't tolerate that. Well, Coach Lombardi to leave the Giants, the biggest city in America, to go to farmland is an improbable story. And for him to succeed in the way he did and to do it with the kinds of players that he put together. Here I was, 22 years old, from College Park, Georgia, had never been in a huddle with an African-American. I wanted to be accepted, but I didn't know how. The intimidation factor was exponentially increased because of this tension I felt about the race thing. The most intimidating of them all was Willie Davis, the defensive captain who was working on his master's degree in business and shattered every racist stereotype that I had learned. He changed my life because I was never able to look at another human being, any human being, in the same way I had. That's the history of America, is diverse people coming together and collaborating from different parts of the country with different backgrounds and just becoming single-minded in pursuit of a goal, which Coach Lombardi was without parallel in terms of enabling to create that kind of a spirit. While Lombardi is often credited as bringing true integration to the game, he did not pair up white and black players as roommates until 1968 when he was general manager. The first two guys to get together was Jerry Kramer and Willie Davis. We ended up down in my room talking about things, and uh, where's your roommate, Jay? Well, not coming to camp. I said, why don't you move in? They're the first integrated couple. They're the first odd couple, we call them. I'd say, Will, yeah, Jay? I said, do you believe in black power? No, Jay, I don't believe in black power. Huh, huh, Will, yeah, Jay? 
You believe in white power? No, Jay, I don't believe in white power. Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, Jay, what the hell you believe in? Green power, Jay. Green power. <laughs> he walked the talk on, on race in every possible way. And that's what led Dave Robinson, his great linebacker, to say that he cried at only two funerals in his life, and one was his father and one was Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi integrated the whole city of Green Bay. Some of the ball players today, I think, they don't realize what it was like, what people had to go through for them to be in the position in the day. The progress that was made during Lombardi's years as head coach erodes soon after his departure and persists over the next two decades. I'm just going to go out and uh, express myself on the football field and let them know that we are uh, part of a community and a bigger part of uh, the community, and we're going to just go out and do what we came here to do, and that's to play football. There was a period of time there where African-Americans viewed Green Bay as not a great place to go. Green Bay became known as the Siberia of the NFL. And that was uh, a saying that was kind of going around the league that, uh, you know, we're going to ship you off to Green Bay if you don't straighten up and play right. It had been 20 years since the Packers had won anything of substance. We see it all the time in sports. Losing generates impatience pretty quickly. Empty seats in Lambeau a lack of diversity throughout the community, and disrespect from longtime fans. Players were not interested in Green Bay or playing for the Packers. It was a wake-up call, maybe, for Green Bay to say, you know, if we want to keep this franchise and we want to win, we have to do some things differently. 1992. The Packers announced the hiring of Sherman Lewis as offensive coordinator and Ray Rhodes as defensive coordinator. The first team in NFL history to have African-Americans holding both coordinator positions. I was told that afterwards, you know, this is the first time this has happened. I said, oh, I, I didn't think about that. I grew up in San Francisco and it was pretty diverse and, and I never thought about those things too much. Holmgren, by naming those African-American coordinators, opened the door. It really sent a message. You're qualified to do the job no matter what anyone else thinks it's the right thing to do. There were coaches that needed the Green Bay Packers, and the Packers needed them. And they were great coaches. When I hired Ray and Sherm, I hired what I thought were the best people. They put people in position um, to help their organization, their ball team win. I don't think Reggie White comes here a year later in free agency without the renewed feeling that African Americans can thrive in Green Bay. It just shattered that image of what people used to say that African-Americans didn't want to come to Green Bay. It was done. It's over. Nineteen seventy. Phil Bankston, in his third year as head coach, is anything but Lombardi. They gave him a coach and uh, general manager, honest to God, he was Weaver's head as coach. He also had a drinking problem that interfered with his coaching. I remember going to uh, out-of-town games and the poor guy was up all night drinking. He'd show up the next morning unshaven, you know, smoking like crazy. You knew darn well their chances were they're going to lose it. He just didn't have the personality to pull off a head coach's job. 
He didn't have that charisma or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, that Lombardi had. You don't fool anybody with your X's and O's and your deception and all that stuff. You beat them by well-coached and motivated people. Phil, unfortunately, was more of an X and O guy. How do you attain and maintain that excellence that we had had for nine years under Lombardi? Packers executive committee discussed making a pitch for Don Shula, and actually somebody made contact and then never followed up on it. At the end of the 1970 season, Bankston resigns. You take things in order. In the first place, there was nothing to consider as long as he was our head coach and general manager. That 20-21 record by Phil Bankston, little did we know that for the next decade that would be the best record the Packers would have. So it gives you some idea of the dark ages that fell upon us. It is an all-bleak. As the 1970s unfold, the Packers are in good shape financially. Thanks to revenue sharing with more games on television and President Dominic Olenicek's commitment to protecting Green Bay's standing as a small market franchise. What he saw with the TV explosion was that if we're going to make this work and make it a, a really good enterprise, we have to have revenue sharing, and that's what's his key. A perfect leader for his time because he, the Packers were in better economic circumstances. He was very articulate in making the case for policies and processes that would protect the interests of the Packers. We wouldn't be here today without revenue sharing. That all occurred during that period of time. He helped the Packers gain economic strength over, over, the, over the years. By 1971, just 21 years after a stock drive was needed to keep the Packers from folding, the team shows its first million dollar profit a net worth of almost $5.8 million. Everyone in the league knew what the Packers represented for the league, from which all of us could learn a lot, and Mr. Lanichak epitomized that. Following Bingston's departure as head coach, a new search begins. They had a number of coaches that were interviewed, including Joe Paterno. They ended up going into the college ranks instead of going to a, a pro assistant. Dan Devine, coach and athletic director at the University of Missouri, is named the Packers' new head coach and general manager. Born in Augusta, Wisconsin, Devine becomes the Packers' seventh head coach. Devine had success in Missouri, so he was revered. He built that program to what it was. He comes to Green Bay, and he has to live in the shadow of the late Vince Lombardi. And let's be honest, nobody's going to match that. He was a master recruiter, both at Missouri and at Notre Dame. He would bring the players in, but the actual coaching uh, was done by assistant coaches. He never could transition from college to the pros. He even had the nerve to show us college football films. I mean, to a pro football team, that was just absurd. Very few coaches have been able to win at both the college football and the NFL level. Let's just say he didn't inspire a lot of loyalty from his staff or from others, including his players. We didn't respect him, but there wasn't much we could do about it. In his first game as an NFL coach, Devine suffers a broken left leg, carried from Lambeau Field on a stretcher after he was upended along the sideline by former Packers, now Giant center, Bob Hyland. Making a bad day worse, the team loses to the Giants, 42-40. The 71 season is also broken, closing out at 4-8-2. It's followed by the end of a historic career. Bart Starr, 
Lombardi's quarterback, retires in July to become Devine's quarterback coach. His career completion percentage of 57.4 is then an all-time NFL best and will eventually take him to Canton. Bart Starrs will go down as the greatest quarterback in the history of the Packers, and deservedly so. He's a great gentleman, but on the field he'll cut your heart out and show it to you. That's the way he did it, and he, and he, uh, he played by example. Everybody appreciated how hard he worked. I can't say perfect because no one's perfect, but Bart Starr, he threw the ball plenty hard enough, and he uh, certainly threw it straight. He got it where it belonged, and he never hung you up. He never threw it to you when he shouldn't. When you were running into Dick Butkus, he wasn't going to throw it to you. I'm thankful for that. The quality of a great leader, of a great quarterback, is being able to deliver when you have to. Anybody can play when, uh, when there's really nothing at stake, regardless of the game, regardless of the situation. If you judge by championships, Bart Starr is not only the greatest quarterback in Packers history, you can make a case that he's right up there in NFL history because he has five NFL championships. He won the first two Super Bowls. He won championships before they were Super Bowls. One of my favorite quotes is from William Jennings Bryan. Destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. It is not something to be wished for. It is something to be attained. Things don't get any better for the Packers for most of the insufferable 70s. The glory years are indeed gone. In eight of the decade's 10 years, Minnesota wins the NFC Central Division, nicknamed the Black and Blue Division. Vikings owned our division. I mean, we only beat them maybe twice when I was here. The new division, the NFC Central at the time, was run and schooled by the Minnesota Vikings. The Packers couldn't buy a win in Minnesota. We went up there in 71, lost the game, free to nothing. Oh my gosh. And we were inside the probably the 10 twice in the red zone twice. I never got the ball. That vine never gave me the ball. The Packers, Bears, and Lions all struggle and live up to the black and blue label by playing mostly ugly, physical football. One exception to the Packers' poor performances is the successful 1972 season under Coach Devine. The big difference between 71 and 72 was Willie Buchanan and Chester Marco. All I had to do was change that uniform, that black and uh, red, and put on the green and gold, and I was prepared to play. He was tough. He was big, he was fast, and he could flat out cover you. When they draft Chester Markle, a span of four years, the Packers had 10 different kickers. They looked at 40. It was one bad choice after another. I remember when Chester Markle and myself came up from the college All-Star game. The coaches said, okay, we want you guys take the next bus out and then uh, we'll take you over to the practice facility. Lo and behold, we didn't know that we were getting on the veterans bus. So we're sitting back there and then the veterans start piling on. And all of a sudden, you hear Ray Nitschke. <laughs> What's that smell? <laughs> and um, Dave Robinson gets on and he says, I think we got rookies on this bus. We ended up getting escorted off the back of the bus, right out the chute. Gail Gillingham was so explosive. You'd watch end zone video of Gail Gillingham. 
And it was like when he buried his head in a defensive tackle's chest, it was like looking at one of those little dogs they put in the back of cars with the bobbing head. Gilly was unbelievable. Best lineman I've ever seen. McLaughlin Lane was the icing on the cake. He was John Brockington's blocking back. So he was very instrumental on the success of John Brockington. This guy was a real deal. He could do it all. He could catch passes. He could block like nobody's business, and he could run. In 72, MacArthur Lane rushed for 900-something yards also, and Brockington went over 1,000. I was the first back to get 1,000 yards in each of his first three seasons, and when I consider the backs that came before me, it's pretty good. He's the first guy in history, 1,000 yards three times in a row. Brock was a north-south runner. Brock was, get the ball, and I'm going. Bruising cold weather battles further fan the black and blue nickname. No game represents the label more than the December 72 matchup between the Packers and the Vikings in 18 below windchill. Packers were easing into the playoffs uh, with Brockington and MacArthur Lane and a, a strong defense. We beat them pretty good that day. I had over 100 yards, Mac had 99, and we had like four turnovers. Clarence Williams had three sacks that day on uh, Fran Tarkington, so big day for the Packers. With a 27-23 win against the Vikings in Metropolitan Stadium, the Packers clinch the NFC Central Division. Dan was named the coach of the year, and it really looked like we might take off. The first playoff game in the playoffs was against the Washington Redskins in Washington against George Allen. I don't forget, it was December 24th, 1972. The Redskins played a five-man front, so it's single man-to-man blocking. They were gonna line up in a 5-1 defense against us. It was just to throw us off and to try to make us think about trying to run over them. They did that because they would take away our running game. We had played them previously that year, and they showed a five-man line. You can't run against it. Apparently, Devine never figured it out. Both Gail Gillingham and I talked to Raleigh Dodge, who was the line coach. I said, hey, tell him, you can't run tackle to tackle on this thing. Flare the back out of the backfield and pitch the ball to McCarthy. Just before the game, Dan Devine decided that he was going to be the offensive play caller that day instead of Bart Starr. Took the job away from him. Devine, I guess, wanted to finally coach. So he took over the realm, and it was all downhill after that. The Packers failed to win the divisional playoff game, falling hard to the Washington Redskins 16-3. They'd taken the play calling away from Bart. Nothing he could do about it. His boss said, this is what we're going to do, it. I'm calling the plays, and he did. Dan Devine was a disaster with the Packers. The Redskins never should have beat us. We lost because we weren't put in the right position to win. I think the boys went home. Uh, that uh, that winter and, and uh, said, we're not going anywhere with this guy. It will be another 23 years before the Packers win another Central Division title. Over the next two decades, it hit rock bottom. In the midst of unquestionable turmoil under head coach Devine, 1974 sees a player strike. Although the organization is essentially owned by its community, Packers are not immune to ownership player disputes over players' rights. When the NFL players went on strike, they wanted free agency. They wanted to be able to move from team to team. They wanted to 
earn more money. The Roselle rule, freedom of movement was the biggest issue. We had started out saying, get rid of the Roselle rule. Bo was the player rep. At that time, teams kind of held player reps accountable personally. The Roselle rule was a rule that the NFL had that if they drafted you, you were their property. If you didn't like what they wanted to pay you, you had to play out that year. It was your option year. You had to play out the option year at a 10% cut in salary. The players wanted the free agency. And at that time, the league was really hard-nosed against that. It was basically a rule that prevented players from having the choice of moving on to another team. Even if you played out your option, then you had to get a team interested in your services. And if the two teams couldn't agree what player the team you were going to had to give up, then Roselle would step in. The slogan was, no freedom, no football. We pulled it off the table and started a federal lawsuit because it's a restraint of trade. We sat down with the owners and they said, we're not going to talk about anything until you drop that lawsuit. And we said, no. At Packers training camp, a players union representative and two Packers players are ordered off the St. Norbert campus when they attempt to talk to rookies on their way to breakfast. The situation is elevating. There was pressure on young guys. We were told, hey, you come to camp, you break the strike, or you're not going to be here. The veterans were barred from visiting the campus and trying to talk the rookies into walking out of camp. You know, they were picketing. They'd picket outside the offices. They picketed before the games. During a practice game between the Packers and Bears rookies, 20 striking NFL players, including 14 Packers, are arrested outside Lambeau Field while picketing the game. I was told by Dan Devine he didn't want to see my face over there at the Packers Stadium. And I got calls from uh, from the coaching staff says, I don't want to see you on that picket line. I said, right on, coach. <laughs> I was the first one there. The talk was that Dan Devine paid off guys to break the strike. He fractured our team, you know, it was awful. I got run out of here on a rail on the 11th year because I was leading the strikers. That was how I was unceremoniously ushered out of Dan Devine's life and out of the Packer life. The 1974 season is fraught with controversy. The restaurant players, who in the world would do something like that other than the screwed up Packers of the 1970s? After the strike, it was a period of, I would say, and I don't think I'm going too far, locker room turmoil. 1970s, the Packers used 18 different quarterbacks, 14 different starters. If quarterbacks are critical to the success of an NFL team, that speaks volumes about the problems they faced. We were hurting at quarterback. We needed a quarterback, and Dan Devine needed a quick, quick, quick fix. Tony Canadeo, former great Packer running back who was on our executive committee at the time, came into my office late in the afternoon. He says, is Ole here? Talking about President Dominic Olenichek. And I said, no, he went home for the day. He says, did you hear what Devine just did? In the middle of the 74 season, with a record of three and three, 
Divine trades five future high draft choices to the Los Angeles Rams for the reigning NFL MVP, 34-year-old quarterback John Hadel. We'd seen Hadel two weeks before. He couldn't throw the ball out of a phone booth. I mean, his arm was shot. An aging quarterback, and we gave up a number of draft choices for it. It set the organization back a great deal. What are they doing giving up all of that for John Hadel? Levine gave up two ones, two twos, and a three in draft choices to get a guy that was seriously at the end of his tenure. Horrible trade, maybe as poor a trade as we have ever made. It ended up being a disaster because John Hadel was washed up and couldn't really deliver. It was a desperation move by a man who was hanging on by his fingernails. Wow, <laughs> that kind of uh, uh, threw the Packers back you know, 10 good years at least. He would do things without going to the executive committee. Things that not only changed the franchise at that time, but affected the franchise down the road. To this day, it's the worst trade in the history of the National Football League. In October 1974, Time Magazine carries a story titled, Haunted in Green Bay. The magazine claimed Devine had been the target of personal insults and professional criticism. The famous story is that his dog was shot and he was all upset that some unhappy fan had shot his dog. The neighboring farmer who had warned Devine a number of times to keep his dogs tied up. Kept chasing the dog off and warning Devine and finally he had enough and took the dog down. The impression that was created by that Time Magazine story was that an irate fan had gone out, out and shot Dan Devine's dog and that was not the case. As if things aren't bad enough, December 1974. One of our assistant coaches came to me before we went to Atlanta. You know, there's a rumor in the locker room that the team is gonna boycott and not show up at the airport on Saturday afternoon. We're supposed to be out there just, you know, having fun and playing a game that the fans like. In four seasons as coach, Devine accrues a less than mediocre 25, 27, and four record. Saturday night when we're in Atlanta, Dan sent a letter to Father Joyce at Notre Dame, formally accepting the Notre Dame job, and had one of our equipment people actually take the envelope to the mailbox and make sure it went out that night. Dan Devine beats the Packers to the punch by accepting the head coaching position at Notre Dame, then resigning at season's end before the executive committee can announce his firing. It was an organization that was in total disarray at that particular time. There was only one guy that people would accept as the next head coach of the Green Bay Packers. The fans wanted him. This was a rare case of the fans hiring the coach. My father was more inclined to want to hire Dave Hanner as the coach. Basically, there was division among the executive committee about who it should be. I honestly thought he would be the answer to our dreams. Christmas Eve, 1974, one year after his number 15 jersey is retired. Former quarterback Bart Starr is named the Packers' new head coach, essentially by popular demand. Starr was a god in Green Bay, so really, was there a choice? Another choice? No. We're gonna bring in this former player who was a great uh, leader for the Packers and beloved by so many people. Especially after he had come back and spent that one year as an assistant when the Packers had success in 1972. It was a no-brainer. Of course Bart Starr would be our next head coach and he would lead us 
back to the promised land. Star asks fans for their prayers and patience. New coach, new system, new training. The first practice Bart Starr coached, there was a line up from the stadium on down to the United Street practice field of people wishing Bart Starr well. Everybody liked Bart and they would rally around him and they would support him and play for him. He was one of those guys that uh, you really wanted to play for hard for. You know, you wanted to make him proud of you. He was organized, very bright, a uh, very good man to work for, loyal. You know, he just uh, was that kind of a man you'd like to, you'd, you know, you'd go to the wall for Bart. There's a, a misconception out there that Bart Starr was easy. You go through one of his training camps and it was brutal. I mean, it was absolutely brutal. In Starr's head coaching debut, Packers punter Steve Broussard has an NFL record three punts blocked, each leading to a Lions touchdown. The Packers suffer a humiliating 30-16 defeat at the hands of Detroit. First time I'd been on a field here uh, as a coach of the Green Bay Packers. Naturally, uh, the butterflies are, you know, they were about uh, three feet across, I think, at that time. Bart had one year of coaching experience. He never came out thinking he was going to coach. He said if he had wanted to coach or had a desire, he would have gone on as a grad assistant at Alabama, worked for Bear Bryner. Most of the great coaches were not great football players, but they were great students of the game. The inexperience hurt Bart terribly. It was a leap of faith for Packers fans. It was a leap of faith for Bart Starr. Whether poor trades, bad luck, forgettable drafts, organizational chaos, unhappy players, union strikes, or questionable talent, the Packers become the laughingstock of the NFL. That was the beginning, really, of the contemporary coverage of the Packers, 1974 into the early 80s when it was very much contentious with Bart Starr as the head coach. When Bart got to be coach, he made a mistake by saying something and then saying, oh, that's off the record. No, you don't do that. Once you say it, it's on the record. The Press Gazette coverage is starting to change. It's starting to question a little more. And that was just a natural progression. There was no ill will there. That's just how media changed, how sports marketing changed, how the NFL changed. Bart is the type of person that looks for the best in people and not the worst. And sometimes you open yourself up in a tough, cold business. You open yourself up a little bit. In 1974, the Press Gazette went all in. They hired a new reporter. His name was Cliff Crystal. Cliff Crystal reported the way it is. Facts are facts. It is what it is. Journalism was changing, and that type of journalism, that type of coverage, came to the Packers beat. I love to dig, love to uncover stories, love the reporter side of the job. Cliff's orders, very different from all the previous orders for Packers reporters, cover them as you would cover anything else. Do that with a critical eye, call them as you see them. Much of my career, I had an adversarial relationship, um, but also I think a respectful one with the people that uh, were running the team, head coaches. My first year, 1991, I'm in for the last four games. We finally win one to go 4-12. and 12. 
So I come home and I told Bob, I, I need to talk to you. I would like to make a change in the coaching, the head coach. But he said, okay. I walk out and I start to get in my car. And I want you to know it's snowing. Across from my car, this door opens and it's Cliff Crystal. I said, what the bleep are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm following up. I see that you went with Bob Arlen. In the bicentennial year, 1976, the Packers acquire Houston Oilers backup quarterback and promising talent, Lynn Dickey. I wanted to go to Denver, and Denver had no interest in me at all. Lynn was the real deal. And man, he could throw that ball. There was a car parked right in front of my house. And I'm thinking, I wonder who that is out there. So finally, I went out and just rapped on the, the window. Still the most accurate long thrower, deep thrower I've ever seen. He rolls the window down, of course, smoke comes rolling out. And it's, uh, it's a man named Lou Carpenter. And Lou Carpenter had been our receiver coach in Houston for a couple of years. I said, Lou, what are you doing out here? He was a major, major part of the solution. He goes, I want to know if you want to come up and play for the pack. I said, Green Bay. He goes, yeah, yeah, we got a good young team brewing. You know, we need some uh, younger quarterback in there. I said, doesn't it get really cold up there? He gave us hope. In 1977, in a game that was already long lost to the Rams, quarterback Lynn Dickey sustains a double fracture to his left leg and is lost to the game of football for nearly two years. The leg did not heal correctly. The guy took x-rays and he puts them up. He looks at them through the, through the light, pulls them down, puts them in an envelope, hands the x-rays to me and says, your leg's still broke. I went, what? I've been running a mile a day, five days a week for a month. He goes, I bet that hurt, didn't it? I went, damn right it hurt. The Packers can never quite gain ground or momentum. On a 45-man roster, I think we had about 36 first and second year players on that team in 1978. So we were all young, coming out of college, first year players, second year players. I don't think they had the right amount of talent. I mean, you have to think about the teams that were winning in that era. We looked at the schedule and said, training camp is tough. The preseason games are tough. We're just going to start the season and see how things go. Despite what some would say are his shortcomings as a coach, Bart Starr is widely admired and respected as a leader. Players loved him. The players responded well to him. Bart lived and learned on the job very tirelessly. I could always ask him anything uh, about the game and reads and stuff like that, little insights that quarterbacks were always looking for a tip. In our locker room, we had these bins that you were supposed to put your soiled uh, T-shirts in and guys would miss the bin. Bart came in and he said, men, we have people who come in here at night and who clean up after you and they really shouldn't have to. And he said, you can tell the true measure of a man by how he treats somebody who can do nothing for him. Hall of Fame player, Hall of Fame human being. As great a player as he was, you'll hear people say he was an even better man. He really was. In the 1979 draft, the Packers miss a prime opportunity 
Red Cochran sat in that draft room, and every time we came up on the board, Red would say to Bart, he does nothing but win. I thought uh, Red Cochran and Dave Hanner were going to have apoplexy. They were just begging him to take him. When we didn't take him, Red cussed, slammed the door, and left the draft room. We passed on him for a fellow named Charlie Johnson, a nose tackle out of Maryland. In fact, he passed not only once, but three times on Joe Montana, and the rest is history. a couple safeties by the name of Johnny Gray and Steve Luke. They were called the Hit Brothers. They earned that nickname not only in games by lighting people up, but in practice, lighting our own guys up. For you a receiver in practice going over the middle, look out because Crazy Johnny or Crazy Steve was going to try to knock you out onto Oneida Street, and they just did it for fun. Every day, it's a test of courage for the receivers. You talk about a group with alligator arms, they're all scared to death. So Lofton arrives on the scene, and before they could light him up, they get called into the office. Hey, you guys, you know this, this knocking the crap out of our own guys, the receivers? That's over. You don't touch this Lofton guy. He's too good. <laughs> 